0: Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Today, we are launching our first series of the year, 2019, with this sort of set of ideas we're calling friendship and we're going to get to that in a second. But if you happen to be new to our community and you don't already know about something we call our journal project, I just want to point it out to you because you can pick up one of our journals at the back at the Connection Centre. Janice is right back there. She'd be happy to help you uh, if you're looking for one of those. You're welcome to it. It's something free that we produce. It's got a bunch of info about commons in it, who we are and how we do community. But it also, if you flip to page 67 in this year's journal, you're going to find some space to take notes there. And there's an outline of our teaching actually for every series that we do throughout the year. We actually put a lot of work into the journal ahead of time so that we can track together, see how the year unfolds and flows through each month. And the journal also gives you a place where you can record and follow your own spiritual journey, take notes for your own reflection later. So we hope that you'll take advantage of that if you haven't already. Now, as we briefly mentioned last week, if you are part of our community, we really want to thank you for a wonderful 2018. We finished the year very strong. As a community, you were very generous, which allowed us to be incredibly generous here in our city. Many of you are aware of our Advent campaign, and we are so proud of the ways that our community really is thoughtful and caring, particularly around Christmas as we look at some of our local partnerships. And now that we're in the new year, and maybe you're looking for new rhythms and habits for the coming months, I want to ask you to just consider setting up a recurring donation if this is something that you do regularly in our community already, and you can do that online at commons.church. It's super straightforward. Our system actually allows you to manage and edit your profile whenever you need to. And to be clear, we say this often enough, but I want to say it again today, we want generosity to be be something that isn't forced or awkward in our community, that's part of our commitment to each other. But we do want you to know also that recurring automatic donations are really helpful for us as we plan and plot and budget. It kind of makes sense, I trust. And with our annual general meeting coming up in March, you're going to be able to come to that meeting. You can see the presentation of our new budget. You'll see the final financials for 2018, if you'd like. And you'll be able to see where we've been, for many years, where we're going in the future and how your contributions, no matter how large or big or whatever they are, your contributions, they matter. So thank you for offering that generosity to our community. Now, as we've mentioned the last couple of weeks and we noted earlier in this video that Jeremy and the friends from Kensington sent over, one year ago, we gathered here in Inglewood for the first time. And with a bunch of friends and curious onlookers, we took our first step as a public parish here in Calgary, and I couldn't be more excited about the ways that we have grown together. For all the ways that many of you have pitched in and helped along the way, volunteering in a myriad of ways, setting up, helping with kids, welcoming everyone, working with sound and lights, lending your voice from the front, praying for our community, serving in our neighbourhoods, sharing your resources, there's so much going on we don't always recognize. And all of these things on their own can feel insignificant and fleeting in some ways. Especially when, if you were to stick around till about 1 p.m. today, you discover that there's nothing but an empty space here once we've cleaned up and put everything away. And I totally get it. Sometimes, this is the way parts of our life feel. It feels like the energy we offer or the things that we do to pitch in, they're so passing. They're so minuscule in the grand scheme of our world. And fair enough. But I want to offer one quick thought. And it's worth noting that marking our first year here in Inglewood, it falls in a part of the Christian calendar that we call Epiphany, and we mention this in our call to the Eucharist. And this is a season of the year where the church, in the wake of Advent's waiting and Christmas feasting, we commemorate how divine light shines out into the world from Jesus' very human self and story. And where we recognize all the ways that this story that we tell and we think about as a community, it's working its way out into the places that we live. And I think that's a provoking image for us as community builders here in the east side of Calgary, just like it was for the Apostle Paul in the first century. See, for Paul, the story of Jesus was this profound example of how God was taking the redemptive sparks held and carried so well in Jewish history, and he was starting to share them with all people. This glorious expanding of goodness that we live in now. And this image is part of why Paul wrote to his Ephesian friends that through Jesus, the divine had made it possible that, quote, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, end quote. And that's a pretty significant statement if you think about it. The idea that God's kindness and character, that divine goodness is revealed to the world by the church. Through churches and parishes like ours. Through local expressions of solidarity and simple efforts to worship together through a bunch of seemingly mundane and unnoticed moments where you and I turn our attention toward the story of Jesus, and then we make an effort, however small, to share its warmth and invitation with the people that we meet. And I want you to know today, friends, that the church has been and it always will be a mystery, and it has and always will require work, but I hope that as we mark a year together and look ahead, that you are present to how maybe you have seen God's goodness as we have done this together. In smiles offered, in meals and messes made, in names learned, in laughter shared, in coffee poured and spilled, in ideas and stories exchanged in this holy shimmering dance we call living, where along the way you found space, maybe just a little, and welcome, maybe for just a few moments, to be your own version of more honest and pursuing passionate life centered on Jesus. So, as we get going today and we start our first series of 2019, let's take a moment and offer an epiphany prayer together. Join me now. Loving God, creating force that bears and births all things. And sustaining power that holds and heals all things. We are present to you now as always. And in community, we celebrate the ways that your grace breaks toward us. The ways that mercy and hope and persistence are sparked in our togetherness. As we're brought to one place and moment like this community center in Inglewood. And today, especially as we mark the ways that your story teaches us, and we are called again to look at Jesus, to see where the story opens up with shocking and reverberating clarity, revealing hope and mercy and grace, and that these things, they are for all people, for our troubled times and for our tired hearts, and for those that we know that carry woundedness today. And so we ask to be quietly reminded again of how distance and background and social boundaries could never keep people from seeing you. Tiny child, obscure carpenter, traveling teacher that you were. And two, how you invite us to speak well of you with words and images and metaphor that sometimes fail us. But how in our carrying of this story we find that it changes us and it moves us further along and closer toward the grace that you offer us. We ask that you would guide us now, parent, rescuer, and friend. Amen. Okay, as we've already mentioned, we're going to be taking, for the first four weeks together here in 2019, we're going to be taking a look at this idea of friendship. And in some ways, this is an extension of some earlier work that we've done as a community. A couple years ago, we looked at the theme of forgiveness, thinking about what that word means, what it doesn't, and how to navigate the challenge of doing it well. And then last year, we worked through a bunch of ideas related to loneliness, considering the ways that we find ourselves alone, how that's not always bad, and how we can learn to embrace our vulnerability with courage and care. And again, I wanna note that if you wanna go and work through those ideas again, or maybe for the first time, they are always available in our podcasts and our YouTube archives. And with that said, as we've prepared as a teaching team for this discussion of friendship, these ideas have actually cycled back to us a little bit and we're going to be looking again at some of the ways that these practices of forgiveness and learning to be vulnerable, these are important for us because it's not really possible to talk about friendship without thinking about how we often have to learn to be gracious with ourselves and with those that we're learning to love along the way. Which is why it might seem like we should try and begin this conversation by coming to a clear consensus of just what it means when we say the word friendship. But I don't really want to do that today. Or at least that's not, where I, where I want, that's not what I want you to walk away with. Because as Beverly Fair, who's going to pop up for us from time to time in this series, as she points out, we all know what friendship is. We've seen it, we've experienced it, we have some notion of what a friend is, until we're asked to define it. To be honest, as I reflected and I prepared, I realized that my connection to this word is anything but idealistic or philosophical. It's totally based on faces and images and moments in my story. My memories of childhood friends getting into trouble, long afternoons playing sports in the summer, bike rides, birthday parties. And then in my adult life, how in my early 20s, my friendship with somebody named Jonathan came to my life. And I have photos of us here. We've shared a bunch of memories now. We hiked together on the South China Sea in 2015. We attended a lecture of noted theologian N.T. Wright, and he posted that less than flattering image of me online, which is what good friends do. Not really sure what's going on there, but anyway, Uh, just flip to the next one there. there. This is us at my grad at UBC and us texting on flip phones there like all good friends used to, to where now, despite the fact that our friends live in Asia, Jay comes to Calgary a couple times a year and he makes time. You can't really see him there, he's silhouetted, but he makes time, he buys our kids gifts when he comes, and he cooks for us, while we often spend a couple of days just laughing and chatting, catching up together. And to be honest, my relationship with Jay is a large part of how and why I see friendships all over the place, and how I'm caught by how central they are to the stories we tell. I mean, from Fred and Barney's Flintstones to Thelma and Louise's Road Trip to Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, to Seinfeld and Costanza, to Tom Hanks and Wilson, friendships are the glue that bind our stories. And for the record, one of my favorite examples of this is Russell Crowe and Paul Bellamy's characters in the 2003 film Master and Commander, which could be mistaken for a period action piece set against the sea battles of the Napoleonic Wars, when in reality, it's a story about a mouthy and heroic sea captain and his civilized, educated ship physician. And how they navigate betrayal and danger and conflicting interests. And the, the film ends in this beautiful, iconic scene where each actor pretends to play a classical instrument they clearly never touched before. And it's about three stars out of five, if you're interested. The point is that I'm only offering these examples because I think that maybe you might have the same experience where if I were to ask you for a definition of friendship, you wouldn't take a quick peek at Wikipedia or pull a line from Shakespeare from memory, but instead you'd start telling me about someone you know or someone you knew, and you'd tell me a story about them, or maybe you'd reference your favorite novel or how you almost teared up watching Wreck-It Ralph. I'm not saying I did, I said almost, because that whole movie's about friendship The point is that as we look at this significant part of our lives, over the next couple of weeks, I hope you do more than walk away with a solid definition. But instead, maybe you'll discover a growing awareness of the friendships that are around you now. And they're probably not perfect, but they're still there. And maybe you've been overlooking them. Or maybe you'll find a sense of clarity about a relationship or two, where you realize which ones are bringing you life or those that are subtly stealing it. Where maybe what's more important than defining your idea of friendship is the fact that you might wake up to or discern the ways that it's already present. The places that you need to hold on to it and invest in it or others where maybe it's time to let go. Now, The need for this kind of wisdom in our lives, it stems from the fact that, like I already alluded to, friendships are intrinsic to how we live in the world. And this is something that we actually have a strong record of historically because you can't go and research the psychology of friendship or even do a cursory online search without going or coming across the writings of the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who wrote many hundreds of years ago ominously that without friends, no one would choose to live. Actually, Aristotle proposed a typology of sorts that many people riff on, even in the contemporary period. Basically, this idea that friendships, all of them, they emerge from one of three situations. First, from utility. Just think of business or work relationships in connections where there's something shared and a benefit to both parties without there being affection mixed in. And then secondly, Aristotle talked about friendships based on pleasure. And what he meant by this was the kind of bonds that we experience with others when we're doing something that we love to do, like the friendships that form in the loose and free moments of our youth. At university, for example, when we have lots of time to spare and we're all sort of mutually self-discovering ourselves. Or another example might be those connections that form while we're being active, enjoying the outdoors together, pursuing a hobby, or playing on a sports team. And then, finally, Aristotle talked about relationships based on virtue, where parties find and appreciate the intrinsic value of each other, and then they commit to it, and they celebrate it. And obviously, Aristotle thought that this third kind of was preferable in keeping with the ancient Greek practice of the answer to multiple choice tests always being C. You guys know that, right? It's anyways, it goes that I think that... Aristotle's most helpful observation to us was how some types of friendships, in his typology it was one of the first two, based on utility or pleasure, that some of them tend to be temporary, and they pass, while others seem to endure over time. And I think that for many of us here today, this might be at the core of how we experience friendship. Because it's pretty common for people to describe a relationship in their life as having this quality where when separated by time or distance and then reconnected with a person, they say something to the effect of, we picked up right where we left off, right? Which is the idea that the most valuable friendships, they have this timelessness to them. They travel with us as we experience distance and change in our relationship to others. And maybe this is some of what Aristotle meant with this third category. The the catch is that most of our friendships fall in a variety of other categories. And if we're honest, this is some of where the pain and difficulty in friendship comes to us. The fact that we experience a lack of friendship at times, where a connection doesn't ever form where we'd like it to, or it doesn't deepen when we lean into one or we work on a friendship. Or sometimes friendships fade or they wane where a connection was rich and meaningful, but then sometimes life just pulls us apart. It's not anybody's fault. But sometimes also friendships tragically end where we experience betrayal and we hurt each other. And we're going to talk more about how maybe we can learn to respond to these kinds of friendship moments in our lives as the series continues And we're gonna grapple with the truth that the most rewarding connections in our lives will actually call us into spaces of difficulty. But for today, we just need to acknowledge and consider this truth that might feel a little self-evident. The idea that our friendships and relationships aren't all ideal. That not everyone is or can be your friend. And here's what I want you to consider. In the coming weeks, we're actually going to take a look at the story of Jesus in the Gospels and we're going to try to read the story faithfully, looking carefully at how friendship might be a helpful lens to think about how Jesus lived in the world and how his teaching, these profound things that he said about the connections that he had in his life, that's actually where they came from. He wasn't just downloading stuff, he was living it and forming it on the ground. Maybe what's curious is how Jesus' story starts to point us toward how some relationships are actually different, and how in some deeply human way, Jesus was not everybody's friend. What I mean by that is when you look at the Gospels closely, you see Jesus surrounded by all kinds of people. There are the crowds that gathered to hear him teach, and then the swarms of the sick and their families who wanted him to bring relief. But then there's this other group of people, this group of about 70 to 100 followers that seem to hang around a bit in the story. In Luke's gospel, Jesus actually sends them out to the villages that he was hoping to go to and visit. And in the book of Acts, we see this group of people together in the upper room as a new community. And in Luke 6, we learn that early in his ministry, Jesus actually called this group of 70 to 100 people together and he chose 12 from among them to be closer to him, this group of men who we would see throughout the rest of the story, probably giving up their livelihoods to stay close to Jesus. And then of course, we have these instances where yet again, Jesus appears to have pulled yet a smaller group into yet a tighter circle. Where in the story of the transfiguration, for example, we see that he takes Peter and he takes James and he takes John with him into that moment. Or where right before his arrest in the garden, at the very crux of his life and ministry, he brought those same three friends with him to be next to him in his darkest moment. Which is all well and good. Jesus practicing this relationship dynamic of increasingly smaller concentric circles where he had lots of connections but also a close-knit group of friends. That's fine. That doesn't sound at all that dissimilar from the ways that you might have hundreds of Facebook friends and then a smaller group inside that you've decided not to block and then yet a still smaller group inside of that that you actually care about. The, The people that you wake up in the middle of the night to see if they've responded to you or not. The point in looking at Jesus as a model for friendship in this way is not just that we acknowledge that we have different kinds of connections. It's to acknowledge how exclusive and exclusionary friendship is. How, as C.S. Lewis points out, you can't call someone your friend without implying that someone else isn't. Because friendships are often those relationships where we discover that someone has some common insight or interest or taste that others don't share, which up until that moment, we believe to be our own unique treasure or burden in the world. And those relationships, they often start with something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. And friendships like this call us out of group togetherness into what Lewis calls a solitude of twos and threes, proving that friendship is selective and an affair of the few. And our experience of it that way is defined by the choices that we make. Choices to pursue some connections over others. Choices to be vulnerable with some and not others. Choices to share our lives directly with some and not others. And I will be the first to admit that this exclusivity hurts us at times. Maybe I want to be part of someone's inner circle and for whatever reason, they don't choose me. Or maybe I choose to be someone's friend who in time chooses to move away from our connection. Or sometimes we have to let a friendship go because our time and our affection, they're not being honored there. the point is that as we look at Jesus, we realize that even as the image of God in the world, he was not above friendship's exclusivity. He chose to define his life by letting certain people closer, excluding some to invest in some. And he was wounded when those in that inner circle let him down. And you know what? He was probably hurt when others didn't choose him, which maybe, even as we start this conversation today, helps you to be okay with the friends you've chosen to fill your life with. Or maybe, even as we're starting to talk about it, you're realizing that some of the friendships in your life, they need you to choose them again. Whatever the case, perhaps you're able to see that to make these kinds of choices is to be part of what Jesus experienced for better or worse. And in following his example, you can step forward with courage into the relationships that are around you. Now... I want to take one more quick look at the story of Jesus before we go today. And for this, I want to look at the story in the Gospel of John about a guy named Lazarus, where we learn in chapter 11 of John's Gospel that Lazarus is sick. And Lazarus, we know, he lived in a village called Bethany, which is right close to Jerusalem, and he often hosted Jesus and his entourage with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And verse 5 in this text tells us that these three were Jesus' friends, that he loved them. So Lazarus is sick, and the sisters send a message to Jesus because he's out of town. And the story goes that Jesus delays in coming back to them for reasons that aren't entirely clear. And then we learn that Lazarus dies. And eventually in the story, Jesus decides to go back. And as he does so, he says this to his disciples He says, Our friend, And he's using the Greek term for friend here, philos. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to go and wake him up, which is this really sort of cryptic thing that's going on in John. And we're not going to talk too much about that today. I want you to note that he calls Lazarus his friend though. And as they get close to town, Martha, one of the sisters, she hears that Jesus has arrived and she goes out to meet him. And there's this exchange between the two of them where Martha says, look, if you'd been here he wouldn't have died. And Jesus responds to her and tells her that someday her brother is going to rise. And like a good Jew of that time, Martha says, oh, I know that he'll rise someday at the end of time or whatever that means. And the ancient author of John does this really interesting thing. He then has Jesus record this big theological statement. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life And what Jesus is doing is he's claiming that all life and resurrection are found in him right now, discovered by those who believe and trust. He says this to Martha and then he asks her, do you trust me? Well, then Jesus runs into the other sister, this woman named Mary, who also tells him the same thing. She says, if you would have been here, we wouldn't have lost our brother, which if we read between the lines, they're asking Jesus why he didn't come when they asked him to. And then we learn that when Jesus saw her weeping, he sees Mary crying, and the Jews who had also come with her weeping too. Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and that he wept. And then there's this line at the end of this passage where the Jews who are around, they said, see how much he loved him. And the word for love here in this phrase is phileo, which is again from the Greek word for friend. Which means that those who were watching this story unfold, they were saying, see what good friends they were? And then Jesus goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. And for many commentators, this is the brightest revelation of Jesus in the gospel. It's this hint of reversal and renewal that comes in the head of his own passion at Easter time. But one of the things that gets overlooked in our reading of those big theological ideas is the fabric of relationship and friendship at the core of the story. In fact, I would argue that that's what's miraculous about it. Where we see Jesus with those he chose to love, with those who had opened their home to him. And we see Jesus in some ways wounding his friends by not coming when they needed him. And we see Jesus choosing to reveal the wonder of new divine life. The great turning of death and loss in the context of his friendships with these people. The fullness of God in Jesus hearing the cries and the requests of his friends. And then his very human eyes welling with tears. Moving him then to push back darkness and despair for just a moment. Which, as we begin this year, might be a good place for us to launch from. Where we realize that like it did for Martha and Mary and for Lazarus, salvation and resurrection often come to us in the context of our friendships. Where our connections to others form the groundwork of grace in our lives our sorrow and fear, all the little ways that we die inside, these are pushed back as we experience the divine through the hands and the hearts of the people who are close to us. And we're gonna talk about how friendship falls short in our lives so often of this ideal, right? But for today, may you find some newness in this image of Jesus as a friend doing everything he could for the people in his earthly life. But then too, may you find grace to see the ways that resurrection has come to you in the wonder of this beautifully broken and fragile thing that we attempt every day, discerning where it's coming to you and growing courage to engage it well as you share divine love with each other in the choice to be a friend and in the discovery that you are loved as one. Let's pray together. Loving God, we need your help. At the beginning of this new year, as some of us face new things, new challenges, and some of us, perhaps, we feel like we're facing the same ones as always We need wisdom to discern the ways that friendship is present to us now. Maybe the ways that we carry wounds from these connections that we've made. And in the days to come, we ask that you would give us grace to sense the ways that you are inviting us forward into choices, to engage newness and to lean in, to start fresh, to care and to choose friendship. And we ask, too, that you'd help us to embrace this image of Jesus from this story, caught in the messiness of being someone's friend, so full of divine goodness but moved to action by his human affection. And would you show us that we have this same capacity? And show us that these kinds of relationships you are bringing To us in them, new life and resurrection in daily, simple ways. We ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen.